Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today I'm talking to a former lawyer who made the sensible decision to trade it all in and build her own career in the world of sweets. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast, and thank you for joining me. And if you happen to be new to the program, welcome to the show. Chef Demoni is a podcast that's all about stories. I've noticed over the years that so many people in the culinary world have so many great stories. The fact of the matter, though, is that people in the food business work incredibly hard doing the work of preparing and serving that delicious food. And as you'll hear today, there can be a lot more to it than that. Pitching ideas, taking care of social media, running a website, and on and on. So on Cheftimony, my goal is to find great stories and to share them with you, stories that you just might not otherwise hear. Now, very often, guests on the show tend to be chefs, and sometimes they're lawyers. And today, my guest, like me, has worked in both industries. Jesse Sheehan is a former lawyer who is now a full-time baker, recipe developer, and cookbook author. Jesse puts out amazing content for what she calls easy-peasy sweets, and I was really, really happy to talk to her. I've been loving Jesse's book called The Vintage Baker, and Jesse and I talk about her writing, her transition from law to baking, we talk about social media, and a whole lot more. After college, Jesse worked as an actress, but ultimately decided to go to law school, which she really enjoyed. She also enjoyed clerking. She did that at the Southern District of New York, and she thought that law was going to be a sexy career, but... I was doing litigation and my thinking was, well, you know, I was in the entertainment industry as an actress and um, it's kind of a sexy world. I'm going to embrace this entertainment law firm. I'm going to do sexy work and it's going to be fantastic. And of course, it was it was like the opposite of sexy. So ultimately, Jesse made the transition away from law. She started interning effectively at a bakery in Brooklyn called Baked. And I feel like Jesse is a kindred spirit because we both combine time in law with working as junior members of professional kitchens when we were significantly more senior, say, than our kitchen colleagues. In any case, Jesse learned her craft at Baked, and as you'll hear today, she is now definitely excited about this career she's got. It's full of delicious sweets, and that all started at Baked in Brooklyn. Baked is a bakery that I originally went into to ask for work because they make all the kinds of desserts that I love, which are basically Americana, iconic, old school desserts. Cakes with lots of billowy frosting and really thick and chewy, big, thick and chewy cookies. Big is always the operative word because I like big treats. I highly recommend that you check out Jessie's writing and, of course, her baking. You'll find her a very active presence on social media, plus she publishes extensively in traditional media as well. And, of course, she's the author of two great cookbooks. Okay, let's get right to today's interview. Here's my talk with lawyer-turned-baker, Jessie Sheehan. Well, Jesse Sheehan, thank you so much for meeting up virtually, of course, as we must all do these days. And thanks for taking the time to be on Cheftimony. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to um, be here. Wonderful. Well, before we get to the baking, before we get to your experience with Baked the Bakery in Brooklyn that I want to ask you about, 
let's start with the legal part of the interview. And I, I love this phrase that you've got on your website. You talk about your abandoning your short-lived and much despised legal career. And I'm sure that will I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of lawyers, but Please take us through the background. I think I know you were doing entertainment litigation, but I'd love to know uh, how that went. Correct. So I'm just going to go a teeny bit farther back than law because it um, helps explain how law, how from law I went to being a stay-at-home mom to baking, etc. But initially, I when I when I graduated college, I was an actress or was pursuing an acting career. So I and I, and my father, I should say, is a longtime law professor. And so I grew up in a in a in a world of um, lawyers, as it were. That was not unfamiliar to me, but it was never something I had even an iota of interest in. I wanted to be an actress. I felt I was a creative person. I thought that was the thing for me. But upon graduating from college and pursuing that, I realized that in fact meritocracy was very important to me, and it was very hard for me to be pursuing a career where it sort of didn't matter how um, talented you were or how hard you worked, you still had such an uphill battle in being successful. And I got so tired of sitting on airplanes and having the passenger next to me say, oh, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I'm an actress. And they would giggle and say, or smirk and say, oh, what restaurant? Um, implying that if you're, a, if you're an actress like me, um, you must, and not famous, uh, you must be working mostly to make money in a restaurant. So long story short, those kinds of conversations began to eat away at me, as well as just not um, finding the success that I was looking for. And so I decided to go to law school. And um, most people in my life thought it was a crazy decision. Even my dad, who supported it, wasn't sure it was the best idea. But I really, I I loved school. I had loved being a college kid. I liked, I guess that's like the nerdy intellectual part of me. I liked learning. I liked writing. I liked that, all of that. And in fact, I loved law school. I, <laughs> I loved writing papers. I loved taking tests. I loved, I loved the constant, I guess I liked being evaluated all the time, being assessed all the time and like working really hard to make sure that I was like getting the grades that I wanted and making law review and all of that kind of stuff became very important to me. And then I graduated from law school and I ended up I was very fortunate and I ended up clerking for a, um, a judge in the Southern District for a year. So I had an, an exceptionally fantastic uh, clerkship. And I just want to say, this is a little off topic, but sadly, my judge, who was in his 80s, just died from the coronavirus. So oh, just, dear, I'm sorry. Just, yeah. We all have people in our lives, but sure. I mentioned it because I'm mentioning him and I want to pay tribute to him. But anyway, that was another fantastic year because it was like an extension of law school. Lots of writing and reading and kind of not that I even like chatting about the law, but I like writing about it and et cetera, et cetera. But then uh, the moment of truth, I left my clerkship after a year and went to work, as you said, in a small entertainment law firm. And it, I was doing litigation. And my thinking was, well, you know, I was in the entertainment industry as an actress and um, it's kind of a sexy world. I'm going to embrace this entertainment law firm. I'm going to do sexy work and it's going to be fantastic. And of course it was, it was like the opposite of sexy. Although at one point we were represent, we, it was, it was music litigation 
is what they specialized in. And we did have a case with um, Mariah Carey. I mean, there were there were some sexy folks in, you know, kind of <laughs> in, the, in the in the orbit. <laughs> exactly, there was sexiness in my orbit, but not like in my office. And um, I hated it. I hated uh, everything about it. Every single case I wanted to settle, and I would try to talk to the partners. Like I think we were in the wrong. I maybe we shouldn't do this. But this was, you know, the late. I'm trying to think of when this was. I guess early 2000s. And nobody, I'm sure no one settles now either, but there was lots of money to be made and and no cases were settled. And we just rigorously worked on our client's behalf um, to make as much money as we could. And um, it just was not for me. I also was the kind of person I would show up at my firm and I'm getting into the nitty gritty because other lawyers may be listening to this. Of Maybe course, yeah. A lay person may not be interested, but it was that kind of thing where like I would get to work at 8 a.m. And try to get as much work and work till 8 p.m. You know, I would put in the 12 hours or whatever was required, but I started it earlier. But that's not the way the culture works, right? Everybody's showing up at 10 or 11 and then they're staying super late and sending those emails to partners at like one or two in the morning. It did not work for me. So it was a short lived career. I lasted two years at that firm and nothing. I mean, obviously, the people I worked with, I loved, I got to know, I thought they were great. But it was just, it was not for me. And I didn't have, I didn't have that fire in my, I mean, I don't know how many lawyers do, but I didn't have the fire in my belly for the work. Oh, and I also hated the lack of control, the way, you know, you're packing up your bag at around 7 p.m. And the partner calls you and says, I need you tonight. Or I, I know you're on your way to some fancy fun weekend with your fiance or friend, but you have to be here this weekend. I hated that. I'm very much a control freak, um, which is probably why I enjoy baking and the kind of specificity of that. But anyway, long story short, I I joke, I ended up leaving my firm because I I was pregnant. And I joke that I am, and I went on maternity leave. And I joke that I'm basically still on maternity leave. (laughs) My older son is now 16, um, because I never went back to that firm. Um, And I was home with with Oliver. And then I had another son, Jack, um, for about a year and a half. I had them pretty close together, about two years. And um, although I loved being a stay at home mom, and I absolutely respect and applaud people who do that and want to do that, women and men. It was not for me. I needed to be, I knew I would be a better mom if I was doing something outside of the house. And I had never been a baking person. I was not the person where everyone was like, oh my God, Jessie's coming. <gasps> They're going to be brownies or, oh, we're going to Jessie's house. I can't wait for her cookies. I had a voracious sweet tooth and I always have, but I was not a sweets maker. But, you know, around this time when I was sort of realizing I wanted something else going on in my life besides being at home with the boys, I was starting to kind of play around with making a few things, not very well and not all the time. I didn't like decide, oh, my God, I'm going to work my way through this amazing baking cookbook that I love. I was not that person. But um, a friend of mine suggested that I go into a bakery in my neighborhood, a bakery in Brooklyn called Baked, which had back then, trying to think when this would have been, my 15-year-old was one, so about 14 years ago, Baked had just opened, or had been open for about a year. And I basically, and boldly, walked in and just said to them, hey, um, I'm a mom who would love to learn what it is you guys do, and I'm willing to do that as you know, an apprentice or an intern. 
what do you think? And of course they thought I was insane because who does that? Who, who, what old lady mom walks in, you know, and says, teach me. So, so, and I, they had me write a note for the head baker. And I remember the note has like too many exclamation points. Like I was so enthusiastic. So fired up. Yes. It's just like yeah, Brooklyn. Like you're not, you don't go in with exclamation points and like brag about being a mom. So long story short, I went back again because I, I am, I am nothing if not persistent. And this time the, the, the head baker was actually in the bakery and I was able to speak to her and she gave me a chance. She said, let's try it. So that was sort of my beginning. I, and I, I think every Monday for maybe nine 30 to two 30, like after dropping off and before picking up kids from preschool and they kind of taught me the ropes. At first I was filling bags of granola with a machine where you had to seal the bags and put stickers on it. And even that I was bad at, like there was, there was actually nothing I was very good at. Then they had me cutting marshmallows. I screwed that up. They had me making tea loaves and making cookie dough. I I, slowly, but surely I got the hang of things. Of the baking. Can I, can I just stop you there, Jesse? Cause I'm curious for your thoughts on any similarities between the two professions. Cause I've done, I'm not a pastry chef by any stretch, but I've done a lot of cooking and I see some yeah. similarities between law and the culinary world. And one of yeah. them, I'm curious for your thoughts. One of them is that both careers are perceived to be at least very sexy, very glamorous. But when ah. you, when you get into the nitty gritty and I'll, I'll tell you a story, I was working at a restaurant in Vancouver called Burdock and Co. And one of the younger because everybody there was younger than me um line cooks he said is being a lawyer like it is on tv and i thought oh boy how can i express to this fellow how much it's not like being uh, a lawyer on tv and i said this is the example that came to mind i said well being a lawyer in real life is about as similar to being a tv lawyer as being a line cook is to being a celebrity chef (laughs) and he went Oh, because nobody wants to watch 12 hours of document review or 12 hours of vegetable prep. (laughs) But from the the outside, people say, oh, you're a chef. Oh, you're a lawyer. That's very simple. I'm just curious what overlap, if any, you saw between the careers. No, I think that's interesting. I mean, in full disclosure, I, I ended up like working in a bakery and actually, you know, doing production, as it were, for only a few years. And because I had a family, I was never on the schedule that most pastry chefs are on. I, I did for a year or so, maybe longer work one of those early, early morning shifts where I came in at five and left at 1 p.m. But in general, most of the people I worked with, and they were all very young too, <laughs> um, obviously, most of the people I worked with came in at seven and left at three. And I think they would say, absolutely, there was nothing glamorous about that. I, I, I kind of not sauntered, but I came in around nine, nine thirty, and left around. You know, I never, I never had to work those hours where you have to stay until every single thing on the production done. Was done. Do you know what I'm saying? It was I never do. like that partner calling you and saying you're here for the night. I, I always, it was like I was, um, yeah, I always had. There were, always, I was always operating under different rules. Um, than everybody else, for better or for worse. Luckily, they didn't hold it against me because I was entertaining. I think, I hope, and and relatively good at my job. But I, but I definitely, and I also feel like even now, because what I do is like write cookbooks, and I work as a recipe developer, and I do food writing. I mean, I wouldn't say glamorous exactly, but it, I guess I would say it's what I love. So to sure, be sexy. You yeah. know, what I mean? to me. 
it it is really fun. And um, I mean, not every single day. I always say, you know, I don't know how much writing you do, but I'm sure you do for work. And if you enjoy it, like writing is something I love, but I actually hate doing it. It's like exercise. I'm glad I've exercised, but I don't necessarily love the process. And I feel that about writing. So I'm not, when I'm working on an article right now, I'm writing something about one bowl baking for the food network. And when I'm writing it, I'm not like, oh my God, I have the sexiest job on the planet. I, I'm amazing. But, but, but when it's done, I'll, I might feel feel great. Sure. I've been doing some videos for this app that the Food Network has called the Food Network Kitchen app. And gosh, doing that and being at the Food Network Kitchens, I certainly felt like, OMG, I've arrived. This is really sexy. So I think both, you know, I think you're absolutely right in terms of what you were saying to that young guy you were working with and being a line cook, it's 100% or or a pastry chef in a restaurant, 100% different than I think the path within baking that I've taken. Right, right. Yeah, you've really carved your own your own path forward through this. It, yeah. it seems to me. Okay. Um, tell us a bit about what it was like working with, I'm curious for your experience, working with the younger people and going in. Yeah. I had a similar experience in my late 30s. I started volunteering in kitchens and uh, I was enthusiastic and I was, I think, a decent home cook, but I had no yeah. formal training, you know, really no background, really no business yeah. being in that kitchen apart from saying, yeah. may I please come in and peel potatoes and watch yeah. the real cooks? Um, yeah, yeah. What was it like working with people who were uh, junior to you, but had more experience? Oh, my gosh. I mean, well, I am not, I don't think I have a lot of ego around that kind of stuff. Not that I'm egoless, because of course I'm not, but I... I didn't feel badly that I was so much older than these folks and yet they knew more than me. That didn't bother me. I will say I had a little ego. I remember a conversation I had. I'd probably worked there for a year or two maybe. And one of my friends, one of the, I think it was the head decorator, asked me if I ever thought about going to um, cooking school to get a degree, a pastry degree. And I remember being kind of taken aback, like, but I know everything. I work here. And in retrospect, I don't, I don't have a ton of regrets about what I, with the path that I've taken professionally, but sometimes I do wonder like, should I have done that? Like, I'm sure in my own head, I thought I'm too old to do that. And I'm learning so much right here. But now that I know so much more than I did a decade ago, that would not have been a bad idea. There is definitely, uh, and I'm going off a little bit on a tangent here, but there is definitely a lot that one can learn. They, I mean, of course you can learn on the job a hundred percent, but I don't, I wasn't on the job sort of long enough. You know, I've never made a croissant, not that I couldn't do it. Like if I was given the recipe for it, but there are pieces of my experience that are missing due to the fact that I never went to school and that I had this kind of funny jump from working in this bakery and just getting some experience, not a ton, but some, and then going into writing books. It was a funny leap, but to answer your question in terms of the the people I worked with, I guess I'm whatever, a kid at heart. I mean, I had so, I just had an ama- a ball with them. I mean, they were really funny and smart and they were great teachers and we had a lot of fun. And I'm still close to many of them who finally, it seems like have caught up, even though of course yes. I can't, but at least now they're like old and like getting married or are married or maybe even thinking about having kids or, you know, so they're, so we they're, we're kind of a little closer now than we were. But um, experience, yeah. yeah. But I had a really good time. That was not a part of my life where I felt like, God, I wish there were people around me who were who were my age. I also think, again, 
I was never, I mean, I think maybe at the most I worked three or four days a week. I was never a 40 hour a week in a bakery. Maybe if I had been, it would have seemed uh, the difference in our ages and in our life experiences would have come to grade on me. But I don't think I was there enough for that to be the case. And they were so useful and fun. And, it and was fun, fun to be around. Yeah. Well, well, my experience, it sounds similar. I was just doing one night a week and yeah. I was just staging. So I would go in, I would leave my office, ditch the suit and put on a chef's jacket and, and do whatever they asked me to do. Yeah. And I absolutely loved it because yeah. it was such a change. Yeah. And not that my office was particularly stuffy, but it was the legal office environment, right? So there are yeah. suit and ties and everything that goes with that. And then I'd run over and be working with 22-year-olds. Yeah. And uh, yeah, 100%. very different. That's exactly but. my experience. Exactly. <laughs> and so much fun. I first heard your voice on the Why Food podcast. And that was with, it was an all-lawyer show, which I loved. It was Valerie Lomas, a foodie in New York and Nisha Vora of Rainbow Plant Life. Yes. And you, and there was a discussion within that episode about leaving the lawyer identity behind. Yeah. And I think I think Valerie still identifies, even though she, like you, is very much into baking and the, the food scene still identifies at least somewhat as a lawyer. Uh, Nisha, and particularly you, I thought, were very clear that you don't any longer. Did you find that transition odd at all? And one of the things, even when I am complaining about aspects of being a lawyer. One thing that I've realized, particularly from stepping away from that identity for a while, is how easy it was for me and is again to answer the question, what do you do? You know, I say, I'm yeah. a lawyer. And people, yeah. that connotes something. You must have a brain. Yep. You must have some ability. Yep. And then the conversation moves on. Whereas when I was away from the office and people would say, what do you do? I would tend to say, well, I'm kind of a cook, but not really. And I used to be a lawyer and I might be again. And I, I, I found it a little jarring. So yeah. was that awkward for you at all? Do you miss that at all or any thoughts on that? That's a good question. I mean, I certainly enjoyed that brief period of time when I got on the airplane and somebody said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a lawyer, or I'm in law school, or I'm clerking for a judge. I certainly enjoyed all that. Definitely. And sometimes because I have a bit of a fraud complex, as many of us do, yes. when I'm on an airplane and, and somebody like, let's say, sees the the um, uh, the screen of my computer, the screensaver, which is like some baked good. And they're like, oh, yum. What do you do? You know, and most of the time I'm like proud, like, oh, I write cookbooks and I'm a food writer and a recipe developer. Most of the time I feel really good about that and don't feel sad that I can't say I'm a lawyer. But sometimes, you know, it's it's quantified differently because I'm a freelancer. It When you say you're a lawyer, it just it is that. But if you say you're a freelancer or you say you're a, you know, I mean, I can say I have two cookbooks and that's certainly something tangible that I can hold on to and talk about with someone. But the food writing recipe development part of which is really mostly of what I'm doing is a little more amorphous, a little harder to describe, a little harder to quantify. Like, am I, you know, you know, buying a yacht or a new, I don't even know why I said yacht. Am I buying a new car because I'm a recipe developer? No. Might I have been buying a new car if I had stayed being a lawyer? Probably. So for people that care, and our society does about sort of, this is your job, that's great that you do what you love, but how much do you make? You know, when those, when it gets to that kind of level of discussion, then I think I probably feel a little, maybe I mourn those moments when, when you could just say I'm a lawyer, but I didn't, I don't, 
I don't think I, I don't have regrets about it. I don't think it was the wrong thing to go to law school or the wrong thing to practice law. There was certainly, I, I think it taught, I mean, as I'm sure you would agree, it taught me to be a great writer. Um, sure. I, or, I don't know if I'm a great writer, but it taught me to write. So that I'm grateful for. But I definitely think it was an aberration. What it, it doesn't really, it, it sort of, I look at it now and I realize, oh, there, there's a connection between sort of the acting theater part of me and now the food part of me and the, the law school part is less connected to those two things, except that I, I care about being a smart person and I like smart people, but I realize there's much more of a connection between this. I see more myself more as a creative, even though I kind of don't like that expression, but I'm a creative and I couldn't see that when I was an actor, I felt like, oh my God, this isn't me. I need to go to law school and just be a regular person, like wear a suit every day. I really want to do that. You know, and now I realize, no, I don't. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, I've got to say, I think it takes guts to make that change and and good on you for doing it. And it's why we're having this discussion, yeah. right? Because I find that so interesting, these stories. And I, I, I don't know if worry is probably too strong a word, but I think about a lot of our legal colleagues and one of the things I said on one of the very first episodes of this show was that lawyers, it seems to me, so many of them have outside interests and almost live second lives. So they'll say when they answer the question, what do you do? They'll say, oh, I'm a tax litigator. But, you know, but I also play keyboards or I'm I'm writing a, yeah. a film transcript or so it's everybody. So many lawyers yeah. are creatives, I think, and can feel really stifled within the legal career. Yeah. But do you think that's many lawyers or creatives or everybody in every profession? Like, do you think the law attracts creative people or do you think that's just a coincidence? And that if you ask doctors, they might say, well, I'm a neurologist, but I also love watercolor. You're right. It's a great question. I don't know. I think, and maybe it's just because I know more lawyers than I know other groups of people. And that's where I see it most often. But I think there is something about the attraction to law school and like you and me, I loved law school as well. And and don't get me wrong, there's much that I love about my legal career, but law school was very different. It was academic, it was research-based, yeah. and then you get into the guts of practice and it's quite different. So yeah, maybe maybe doctors and others do feel that as well. And maybe it's simply yeah. the fact that the training law school is so different from the profession that people are met with this, wait, hold on, is this what I actually bought into? <laughs> I thought I was yeah. going to be doing something yeah. a little bit different. And, and do you think other professions are less like that? That the schooling matches up with what it's actually like? I don't know because I, it's a good question. I don't know because I haven't done them. But I, yeah. I, my gut reaction is to say I hope so because yeah. I, I found law school to be very much like another uh, arts degree in that it was reading, research, writing exams. Whereas what I envision for, say, medical school is – labs and you know shadowing doctors and and doing yeah. consults and that kind of thing although i could be wrong i don't know what do you think i'm thinking about medical school i mean i guess part of medical school is residency and do they call it an internship i can't remember what the other lingo is i feel like probably the school part of medical school is is all about memorization and i i, I guess i don't really know i would posit that maybe most careers are like that but maybe it's that people have a better sense of what it would look like to be a doctor than they do a lawyer. So that even when they're in medical school and they realize, oh, I'm not taking care of patients, they kind of know that's their end goal. So, you right. know, for being a lawyer, you really don't know what it's going to feel like to, yeah, to do 
well, I again, I only clerk. I was like a, such a low level uh, associate because I only did it for two years. But at my level, just yeah, I just had no idea what the busy work would look like or what the time const- like. I, I of course I knew that the hours would be long, but I didn't know what that would feel like, and I didn't. I think I I don't know if I thought the the work would be interesting or not. I found it slightly mind numbing, but that also might be because I didn't feel super engaged. So I wasn't pushing to get more work. I mean, I, it was a tiny firm. If I had been passionate about what I was doing, they would have given me opportunities. I just wasn't passionate. Right. Just wasn't the thing. Well, let's, let's move into the passion fully now and take us from your experience at Baked. And then how did you make that transition to to what you're doing now, recipe sure. developer, cookbook writer. Sure. Uh, so I got, yeah. So I got very lucky in that the two guys who own Baked, um, Nato and Matt, uh, decide, were starting to write their first cookbook right around when I came on board. So I was the perfect person for them to ask to be their recipe tester. And a tester is different from a developer. A developer figures out what the recipe is going to be, what the what the ingredients are going to be and what the instructions, how the instructions read. Whereas a tester takes that recipe, goes home, preferably best to do it in a home kitchen because you're testing for people who are going to be buying the cookbook or buying the magazine that the recipe is in. And you're testing the recipe to make sure it works. So I was kind of the perfect person for them to ask. I had a little bit of experience that they had taught me, but not a ton because you don't, in some ways you don't want a professional, professional person testing all your recipes because they might make uh, changes without even realizing they're making them because they Right. They'll come up with a workaround if they need to. A hundred percent. So I was the perfect person to test recipes for their book because I had a little bit of experience, but not a ton. And I could bring the recipes home to my home kitchen and work on them. And they knew me and it was just, it was a kind of a, a perfect marriage. So right away, I almost right away, I mean, a few months into working there, I started doing that. And that led to doing it for their second book. And then that led to starting to develop some of the recipes for their books, maybe even before I should have even been given that opportunity. But I was because I knew that. I mean, it was very much a, a combo of being in the right place at the right time. And again, being a bit of a hustler and wanting the work and looking for it and making myself available. So the recipe testing for their books were um, morphed into the recipe developing for their books. And then I asked to be introduced to their literary agent and to the people in their world, not because I had a book idea and was ready to write one, but because I wanted more work. And often, you know, agents sometimes are working on a book with an author and they need someone to test for it, or they might even need someone to develop for it. So that's how I kind of made my way over to their agency and ended up being connected with a writer that that agency was thinking of new or might be working with. And that writer needed someone to help them write a book on icebox cakes. And that's how my first book, Icebox Cakes, came to be. I really had no no business writing a cookbook at that point. I really didn't. But the opportunity arose and um, it ended up being obviously an incredible experience. Um, and one thing I will say back to this recipe testing thing Although I do believe it's great to have a home baker test recipes or a home cook test recipes for a chef's book or magazine article, et cetera. I did find with my own books that I ended up like I had 30 different people testing, you know, all the moms at my kid's school, like all the home bakers I could find. And in the this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's interesting. In the end, I realized that they were just too nice. 
either too nice uh, or not knowledgeable enough. Yes. Because they would be like, I'd be like, what'd you think? I loved it. <laughs> okay. Were there any problems? No. You know, <laughs> yes. or, no, I didn't like it. Why? I don't know. I didn't like it. You know, mm, it didn't work. No insight. Do you know what I mean? In retrospect, I, I don't want to say if, I want to say when I get the opportunity to write a third book. I think I actually will hire someone, which a lot of people do, who knows what they're doing. Because I really want the feedback of that works, that doesn't. I don't think that's a good recipe, Jess. I would cut it all together. I need that. Yes. Like, yeah. It it makes sense. It's inter- You know what's, what's resonating for me in my head was I had friends over for a brunch. I'm going to say this was many, many years ago. And they had, at the time, two little kids. And the two-year-old, uh, uh, this is where I learned that I will take seriously food criticism from anybody under the age of five, but over the age of five, I'm always suspicious. Yes. That's when people start to tell you what they think you ought to hear. Yeah. Whereas the two-year-old, I had made a salmon riette, which I didn't think kids would like, and she yeah. ate virtually the whole jar. And then there was, I forget what the second dish was, but she put a bite in her mouth and opened her mouth and spat it out directly on the coffee table. And I thought, you know what? There is some honest feedback. Well, that's so funny you should say that because my 15-year-old, he just turned 15 on Sunday. So he used to be 14 like an hour ago. But anyway, (laughs) um, he is very, he's not picky exactly. He's a good eater, but he much prefers packaged sweets and baked goods to mine. He wants Paul Newman's organic mint Oreos and Ben and Jerry's ice cream. He does not want my cake, my cookies, etc. So if he likes something that I make, I know it's good. He right. never lies. He always told, I mean, I literally made him a birthday cake, Graham, on Sunday. He had one piece and the entire, and everybody in the family had one piece except me who had three. And then I continued to eat it until today when I threw it away because no one else was eating it but me. But anyway. <laughs> For another day, so unfair. But anyway, when he when he likes it, I know it's good. I feel that way about everyone in my family. My husband is also has a very good palate, better than mine. And if he likes something, I know it's very good. If he doesn't like something, it could still be good. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. With my with my 15 year old, if he doesn't like it, I might have to make some some adjustments. Okay, fair enough. And so the process between, and uh, oh, please tell, I now know because I've done a little bit of research and I, I own your second book, The Vintage Baker, yes. but not the first, The Icebox Cakes. W- tell my listeners who who may, like me, not know, what is an icebox cake? Oh, sure. So icebox cakes are c- cakes that are essentially baked, as it were, in your refrigerator in the sense that an icebox cake is primarily made up of cookies, and whipped cream. And this kind of incredible alchemy happens in the refrigerator where the whipped cream is absorbed by the cookies and the cookies turn cake-like. So after a stint in the refrigerator of these cookies layered with whipped cream, what comes out eight hours later tastes like the most amazing, creamy, delicious cake you've ever had. And you can do this with graham crackers and pudding. You can do it with lady fingers and pudding. You can put ganache in. You can put caramel in. You can zhuzh them up in a million different ways. My book is very DIY. So you make your own cookies. You make your own graham crackers. You make your own lady fingers, pudding, whipped cream, etc. I will say in, my, in now, that book came out in 2015. Now, if I'm going to make an icebox cake, I am buying not the pudding, but I'm definitely buying the cookies or the graham crackers or the lady fingers. To me, it's just not worth it. And and I will say my baking focus has changed and I'm very much 
trying to find and trying to help other people find easy, simple ways to make delicious things as opposed to more complicated ways. I think not to throw my book under the bus at all. It's a great book and the recipes are fabulous, but it's time consuming. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It can be a process, but yes. but, but worth it at the end. <laughs> okay. Well, and tell us about the second book, The Vintage Baker, sure. because I love, I love the book. One of the things I love about it is it's got a mini pamphlet right yes. in the book. Yes. And I take it that is an homage to the pamphlets that inspired you. Tell us about, about first, yeah, about first finding those and, and what they are and how they, how they triggered your imagination. So around the same time I started working at Baked uh, and Baked, let me just to explain, Baked is a bakery that I originally went into to ask for work because they make all the kinds of desserts that I love, which are basically Americana, iconic, old school desserts, cakes with lots of billowy frosting and really thick and chewy, big, thick and chewy cookies. Big is always the operative word because I like big treats, whoopie pies, you know, cinnamon buns with tons of cream cheese frosting, coffee cake that's four inches tall and with like a huge swirl of chocolate inside. All the kinds of things that I love making are the kinds of desserts that Baked uh, was making when I went in there and is still making today. So those were my thing. And around the same time as I started working there, I was, I think, bringing my, I think one of my little boys was maybe three, was at an art class in Brooklyn near where I lived. And my other son and I, who was one at the time, were kind of strolling around. And I passed this this junk shop, like a vintage junk shop on a street corner. And I spied, the door was open, it must have been springtime. And I spied these kind of baskets filled with these tiny little recipe booklets, old fashioned recipe booklets on the floor of this junk shop. So I kind of, you know, pushed Jack in stroller into the shop and this was not a shop for a for a baby um so i kind of spied these booklets which had these really whimsical beautiful covers that were were covered in drawings of all the desserts that i love to eat they were cakes and cookies and sticky buns and coffee cakes and i grabbed a bunch of these booklets and like not even really looking through them to see which ones i wanted which ones i didn't just grabbed a bunch paid and left again because it wasn't the right place for my son but when i got home I sort of spent a little bit more time with them and realized um, that the booklets were filled with these simple old fashioned recipes that called for a particular ingredient that a company was trying to sell. So they were advertising pamphlets. It would be like a swan's down cake flower pamphlet. It would have a beautiful cake on the cover. And then inside would be all different kinds of recipes that call for cake flour. And essentially back in the day, you either purchased that for a penny or two when you bought the box of cake flour, or it came for free or was sent to you in the mail if you filled out a coupon. And it was a way to promote the product and to get housewives, because it was really just women at this point, um, to use the product. And these were recipes you could use. And I love the booklets for their covers. I love the booklets for the very, the recipes were super, super simple, which as I've said, is sort of the direction I've gone to with my baking. And they seemed kind of like they were well-tested. It was like, this is the, you know, the ultimate biscuit recipe. If you're, you know, purchasing this particular baking powder, they had come up with the best uh, uh, recipe for biscuits using their powder. And I loved, um, 
the simplicity of the recipes. And I was just beginning, you know, to learn about recipe development while working at the bakery and working on Matt and Otto's books. And they were kind of these great blank canvases, right? In the recipe would have a no, like no frills, like maybe not even salt. And, you know, a cookie might not have vanilla. But so it was fun to see the bones of the recipe and then to begin to overlay that with, oh, you know, you could use coconut oil here instead of the vegetable oil or what about olive oil or how about if we melt the butter I wonder if the cookie will be chewier or how about if we add chives to the biscuits or whatever it was they were like a a learning tool for me as well as just became a little bit of an obsession and so I began collecting these booklets you can actually find them on Amazon on Etsy all over the place and in junk shops and thought about uh thought that it would be kind of a great thing to write a book about and kind of was surprised that nobody else had that, you know, what about if you use these recipes in these booklets as jumping off points for a whole cookbook of recipes, which is what I did. And I think the researcher, maybe from my legal days, appreciated the challenge of finding the recipe booklets and learning about them and being able to write the head notes of each recipe kind of tells the story of the booklet it came from and the changes that I made to that. And in order to get permission to use the photographs of the booklet covers in the book, of course, the law came into play. Of course. Now, I, uh, the publisher put made it my responsibility, so they were not going to track down all these companies on my behalf uh, to, to get permission to use the the images. I had to do that. And so I actually ended up working with a copyright lawyer to do that. But I'm sure there was some element of my legal background that came into play while doing that, that was sort of- <laughs> I, love it. I love how it comes full circle. And and these recipes, they span roughly a 50-year time period. Is that right? So these pamphlets, they existed really from the late, I guess, 19th century to the mid 20th. Is it that about their time horizon? 100% true. Uh, some of them you can still like find a Nestle one around Christmas time in the grocery store. But yeah, sure. essentially, that was the time when they were really in their heyday. And that was the time period I sort of gave myself to work with. Okay. And is there, a, can you describe in a general way how you've done some of the tweaks, or is there a general principle to doing the tweaks? You've mentioned maybe chives in the biscuit. And I know in the introduction to your book, you said they can be tweaked with, um, I love this, maybe a handful of basil or a glug of booze. Yes. <laughs> and so is, are there some general principles that you use to, to bring them into the 21st century? Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, in terms of starting at the skeleton, the first are things like salt and vanilla and just flavor. I mean, as funny as it sounds, I think things tended to be a little a little more bland. You know, if it was a chocolate cake, I know that like espresso powder or coffee brings out the taste of chocolate. So I always will add that to a chocolate cake. So if I see a great, you know, I have a devil's food sheet cake in my book, I'm going to amp that up. Immediately, I know if I'm developing a chocolate cake recipe, espresso powder is going in that cake. I love to use egg yolks in a lot of my recipes because of the moisture that they add. They can add chewiness to a cookie. So if I'm working on a cookie, I'm going to think about adding yolks. That's just like I have a few things that I always do that are very much me. I love brown sugar more than I love granulated sugar. So I'm always... A lot of recipes will call for both, but I'm always trying to, I'll be the person who'll say, let's get rid of all the granulated and just go with brown. I love those molasses-y vibes. And again, this kind of chewy, caramelly thing that's going on when you use brown sugar. In terms of the actual flavors, I think that's just me having fun. Like I have a cacio e pepe 
a popover in my book. And that's because I had to be thoughtful about which recipes I chose to put in the book, because obviously there are so many. And it was, it's a little, as, as cookbooks go, it's not a big book. There are only, I believe, 50-ish recipes in the book. That's not a lot. So when picking recipes, I chose recipes that either had a super whimsical name that I just loved, like I have a white cake called a silver cake with pink frosting, or I chose recipes that I saw over and over again in the booklet. So it seemed only right to, that they be represented in my book. And popovers were one of those. So I knew I was going to put a popover in the book. Um, I thought it would be fun to have something savory since most of the recipes obviously are sweet in the book. And that's where I, and then I know I love cacio e pepe pasta and I actually have a cacio e pepe biscuit on my website. So I was like, oh, cacio e pepe. So sometimes it's just that kind of thing. You know, you want to do, you know, you want to zhuzh it up and you're just kind of thinking about in the big picture of the book. And then in the specific recipe, what can I do? To do that, that still makes it, you know, accessible to people and appealing. Right, right. Love it. Um, and, and a big focus of your work now, Jesse, is, and this is a phrase I hear a lot when I see you on uh, Instagram, is, as you've discussed, making it more simple. And the phrase is easy peasy. Yeah. So what what is, what would you recommend if there was one either recipe or technique or approach that people try for sweets at home? What is something that's easy peasy that's going to create something delicious quickly. Do you mean like a recipe? Yeah, it could it could could be a recipe, it could be a technique for adding flavor to a recipe. I uh, definitely say the things I just mentioned. Yes. I, I mean it's a little risky if it depends on how comfortable you are around twisting and tweaking a recipe. If you start telling people to add egg yolks every every time they see a recipe or right. voila, or espresso powder to their, you know, obviously you sort of have to know the ratios and the impact. Correct. But gosh, I mean I guess for easy peasy recipes, I would say, come check mine out. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> they are super easy. Cause I just, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's age, but that's just, I get so, I get anxious if I see more than like five ingredients and like five paragraphs or, you know, more than like a, a few steps in, in instructions in a recipe. It's just, I am like the opposite of like, I mean, I love auto food and if someone wants to make it for me, I'm going to eat it, but that is not going to be where I'm headed when it's time to make dinner. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think people look, if you, if a lot of people who like to bake, like baking projects, you know, that's not, that's not what I like. And that's certainly not what I try to develop and make, or that's not how I pitch myself. But I think that if you, if you like easy peasy, I mean, I would definitely check out recipes that call themselves one bowl recipes. I adore that kind of recipe because I also hate doing dishes and if you, have bowl, you don't have a lot of dishes, but yeah, I would say come check out my website and see the things that I write about and develop. Um, they're all easy, but always super delicious again by, you know, it's still not a lot of ingredients, but it's that extra egg yolk or a little bit more vanilla or definitely that sprinkle of salt at the end. I love it. I love it. Can you give us a little, this is sort of a, a, a rambling question, but I'm curious if you can describe maybe just a day in the life of Jesse these days. And I'm particularly interested in the, uh, what I'll call the digital entrepreneur, because you're very active on social media. You've of course developed the website. You're doing, you're, you're building your own career. Yes. You have built your own career, which I think is something that many, many people are interested in. So what, what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis for you? So I would say the number one thing is like the hustle and the pitch. I feel like I am constantly going after opportunities that I want and that I think are right for me 
following up on those opportunities over and over again. I mean, literally, as soon as I send a pitch email, I put into my calendar when when I'm following up. Because first of all, I have old lady brain and I won't remember if I don't. But also because that's the name of the game. You know, I have friends who are like, oh, if, if I don't hear back, I assume the editor's not interested. I never assume they're not interested until they tell me they're not interested. Sometimes it's painful and I feel like, oh, I'm annoying and I'm, I'm emailing too much. And sometimes I'm told like back off. That was, you know, it's, you, you can't, one editor once told me, you know, we're a three, six times a year publication. This is too many. You're pitching too frequently for the amount of, I forget how she put it, but I won't lie. It hurt my feelings. I never pitched her again. I mean, that's not the most mature thing one can do, but that's what happened. And actually, as I say that, it makes me think I'm going to pitch her again. (laughs) Sure. In general, in general, it's a lot of hustling. So I would say I'm hustling absolutely as much as I'm actually creating work, you know? And then sometimes um, it's funny, the first month of, of being, you know, we're recording this while we're all social distancing. Um, the first month of social distancing, I couldn't have been busier. I'd like never been this busy. Everybody wanted video content. They wanted to see people making recipes in their kitchen. And I was doing that nonstop, it seemed, for a month. And so that was a lot of baking uh, on camera in my kitchen, which um, with my 15-year-old as my um, DP. And... Um, but often I can go for a few days even without baking because I'm working on a lot of writing. Like right now, I mean, I baked my kid a cake on Sunday, but I'm not, I'm not baking any, I'm not planning on baking anything today. I, I think I'm shooting a video for my publisher Chronicle Books on Friday. So I'll bake something then, but it's not like I bake every day. So I think it's hustling. I think it's some baking right now. It's creating video content for people and it's um, writing. Like I said, I was writing this one bowl piece for Food Network. And, you know, I have other something coming out for Food 52 in the beginning of June. I have, I I, I hope to ha- always have things that are I'm either working on or on the pipeline to start working on or are actually being published. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's, um, it's funny in some ways. I mean, it's very much a freelancer's life. Like, I have to create my own work. Sometimes the work comes to me and that's like an incredible, like you're so psyched when you get an email, like, Hey, can you write this for us? Or, Hey, can you come be on our show? You're like, Oh my God. <laughs> yes, I, can. The time, I feel like it's me saying, can I do this? I have this idea. Can I do that for you? Also, and see, this is a little yeah. embarrassing, but while social distancing, I've also become a TikTok phenomenon. Well, if your kids are on TikTok, I highly recommend you check me out. But that's something that, you know, I work a lot with a group called The Feed Feed, and they are uh, based in New York and in California, but they're national, and I'm sure you know of them. Yes. yes. And I um, got very into TikTok and persuaded me to come on board and make TikTok videos with them, which I did, but then the virus hit. And so now I've just been making them on my own and giving, making them for them and making them for myself. And that's another way to sort of um, constantly, as much as I can, have a, you know, a hand in every pot, as it were. Who knows what TikTok is going to become? And it's certainly very different than Instagram, but people say it's going to be big, you know? And so I, um, so I'm constantly working on the social media aspect of this, which I won't lie. I, it's not like I love it. Yeah. Of course, I love it when I see like a million likes and comments that I'm so great. Of course, I love that. But I actually hate taking the pictures. I hate coming up with the comments. I hate 
having to check my phone. I mean, my family says I don't need to check my phone and that I'm an addict, but I'm checking my phone all the time, trying to respond to all the comments, trying to stay relevant. I like to look at every single picture that everybody I'm following on Instagram is posting because I get inspired by that and I want to know what's going on, but it's like a full-time job. Right. Just staying on top of it. You know, what's what's coming to my mind as you say this, Jesse, is isn't it interesting, no matter what the career is, whether it's law, whether it's full-time chef or pastry chef, or creating your own freelance life, people, again, this comes back to something we discussed at the very beginning, it might look glamorous from the outside, right? But because, because, yeah, because I look at your social media feed and other social media feeds, and I think, I want to be a recipe developer. I want to do, I want to have, you know, pieces in food yeah. 52 or wherever it is. But what I'm not seeing on the surface is the hours and hours and hours of pitch and hustle behind every one of those. Yeah. And uh, even though some, you know, I constantly, people will say to me, you're everywhere, you're this, you're that. I mean, I'm glad that that's the illusion that I'm giving. And that is so like optics because it doesn't feel that way to me. Again, it's not like, I wake up in the morning and there are 10 emails of people who offer, even people I've worked with don't sometimes don't return my email. So again, I don't think that's personal to me. I don't think they're mad at me. I don't think so. People are busy. Editors are busy, but it's, that is hard. You know, I'm always, it's always me or, you know, 90% of the time it's me saying, Hey, can I come back on your TV show? Hey, I'm going to be in LA. Can I be on your show? Hey, want me to do your podcast? I got an idea for an article. How about this? I'm dying for it just to be the kind of thing where food 52 writes me, Hey Jess, we need this, this, and this. Can you get that in June, July, and August? I'd be like, yeah. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) No, it's the reality is so often, so very yeah. different. Yes. Yeah, yeah. no, the optics yeah. thing is you're right. That is full circle of that thing about what looks sexy and what doesn't. Absolutely. So I'm just going to ask you one or two more questions, which is basically where can people find you? Um, people can find me on Instagram, basically on all social channels at Jesse Sheehan Bakes. I'm there on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter is Jesse S. Bakes, and I'm there on TikTok. And I and my website is Jesse Sheehan Bakes. And that's Jesse J E S S I E Sheehan S H E E H A N and then the word bakes. Terrific. Well, Jesse, listen, thank you so much for taking the time early on this uh, Wednesday morning. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. You're so welcome, Graham. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. You too. Thank you, Jesse, so much for joining me today and for sharing your thoughts, your thoughts on law and on transitioning into a new career on social media, what it takes to make it today. Isn't it interesting? Everything requires work, even when it looks like such an amazing entrepreneurial, digital, social media, freelance life, it's all plain hard work. But on the distinct upside, it definitely sounds like you're enjoying your career and a loving the content that you're putting out. So thank you again for sharing your story. And thank you for joining me too. I'm really glad that you've chosen to spend another Friday or whichever day you happen to download or stream this episode. Whenever it was, I'm glad that you chose to spend some time with me here on Chef Demoni. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with a food-loving friend, somebody you think might enjoy the show as well. If you've got a few minutes, I'd really appreciate you leaving a star rating for Chef Demoni. You can do that on Apple Podcasts and many of the other podcast apps. If you've got a few more minutes, please leave a written review. Doing either or both of those things will really help other people to discover the show. And as always... 
I love to hear from you. Listeners to the show are a constant source of topic ideas and great guests for the program. So if you know a chef or a lawyer, or maybe you are a chef or a lawyer, who could be a good fit for Cheftimony, please get in touch. You can do that on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or you can just send me a good old-fashioned email to graham at cheftimony.com. All right. That is all for today. Thank you again for joining me for the show. I'll see you next Friday, right here on Chef Demonio.